Part 2 of Korematsu versus United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kelly Robinson in Birmingham, Alabama. Korematsu versus United States. An Opinion of the United States Supreme Court. Part 2. Decided on December 18, 1944. Please note, Part 2 is a reading of Mr. Justice Roberts' dissent. This reading does not include a reading of the Court's opinion, Justice Frankfurter's concurrence, Justice Murphy's dissent, or Justice Jackson's dissent. For ease of listening, this reading omits footnotes and legal citations found within the text of the Court's opinion. I dissent because I think the indisputable facts exhibit a clear violation of constitutional rights. This is not a case of keeping people off the streets at night, as was Kiyoshi Hirabayashi versus United States, nor a case of temporary exclusion of a citizen from an area for his own safety or that of the community, nor a case of offering him an opportunity to go temporarily out of an area where his presence might cause danger to himself or to his fellows. On the contrary, it is the case of convicting a citizen as a punishment for not submitting to imprisonment in a concentration camp based on his ancestry and solely because of his ancestry, without evidence or inquiry concerning his loyalty and good disposition towards the United States. If this be a correct statement of the facts disclosed by this record, and facts of which we take judicial notice, I need hardly labor the conclusion that constitutional rights have been violated. The government's argument and the opinion of the court, in my judgment, erroneously divide that which is single and indivisible, and thus make the case appear as if the petitioner violated a military order, sanctioned by act of Congress which excluded him from his home by refusing voluntarily to leave, and so knowingly and intentionally defying the order and the act of Congress. The petitioner, a resident of San Leandro, Alameda County, California, is a native of the United States of Japanese ancestry, who, according to the uncontradicted evidence, is a loyal citizen of the nation. A chronological recitation of events will make it plain that the petitioner's supposed offense did not, in truth, consist in his refusal voluntarily to leave the area which included his home in obedience to the order excluding him therefrom. Critical attention must be given to the dates and sequence of events. December 8, 1941, the United States declared war on Japan. February 19, 1942, the President issued Executive Order Number 9066, which, after stating the reason for issuing the order as protection against espionage and against sabotage to national defense material, national defense premises, and national defense utilities, provided that certain military commanders might, in their discretion, prescribe military areas 
and defined their extent from which any or all persons may be excluded and with respect to which the right of any person to enter remain in or leave shall be subject to whatever restrictions the military commander may impose in his discretion february twentieth nineteen forty two lieutenant general dewitt was designated military commander of the western defense command embracing the westernmost states of the union about one-fourth of the total area of the nation march second nineteen forty two general dewitt promulgated public proclamation number one which recites that the entire pacific coast is particularly subject to attack to attempted invasion and in connection therewith is subject to espionage and acts of sabotage it states that as a matter of military necessity certain military areas and zones are established known as military areas numbers one and two it adds that such persons or classes of persons as the situation may require will by subsequent orders be excluded from all of military area number one and from certain zones in military area number two subsequent proclamations were made which together with proclamation number one included in such areas and zones all of california washington oregon idaho montana nevada and utah and the southern portion of arizona the orders required that if any person of japanese german or italian ancestry resided in area number one desired to change his habitual residence he must execute and deliver to the authorities a change of residence notice san leandro the city of petitioner's residence lies in military area number one on march second nineteen forty two the petitioner therefore had noticed that by executive order the president to prevent espionage and sabotage had authorized the military to exclude him from certain areas and to prevent his entering or leaving certain areas without permission he was on notice that his home city had been included by military order in area number one and he was on notice further that at some time in the future the military commander would make an order for the exclusion of certain persons not described or classified from various zones including that in which he lived march twenty first nineteen forty two congress enacted that any one who knowingly shall enter remain in leave or commit any act in any military area or military zone prescribed by any military commander contrary to the restrictions applicable to any such area or zone or contrary to the order of any such military commander shall be guilty of a misdemeanor this is the act under which the petitioner was charged march twenty fourth nineteen forty two general dewitt instituted the curfew for certain areas within his command by an order the validity of which was sustained in hirabayashi versus united states march twenty fourth nineteen forty two general dewitt began to issue a series of exclusion orders relating to specified areas march twenty seventh nineteen forty two by proclamation number four the general recited that it is necessary in order to provide for the welfare and to ensure the orderly evacuation and resettlement of japanese voluntarily migrating from military area number one to restrict and regulate such migration and ordered that 
As of March 29, 1942, all alien Japanese and persons of Japanese ancestry who are within the limits of Military Area Number 1 be and they are hereby prohibited from leaving that area for any purpose until and to the extent that a future proclamation or order of this headquarters shall so permit or direct. No order had been made excluding the petitioner from the area in which he lived. By Proclamation Number 4, he was, after March 29, 1942, confined to the limits of Area Number 1. If the Executive Order Number 9066 and the Act of Congress meant what they said, to leave that area in the face of Proclamation Number 4 would be to commit a misdemeanor. May 3, 1942, General DeWitt issued Civilian Exclusion Order Number 34 providing that after 12 o'clock, May 8, 1942, all persons of Japanese ancestry, both alien and non-alien, were to be excluded from a described portion of Military Area Number 1, which included the County of Alameda, California. The order required a responsible member of each family and each individual living alone to report at a time set at a civil control station for instructions to go to an assembly center, and added that any person failing to comply with the provisions of the order who was found in the described area after the date set would be liable to prosecution under the Act of March 21, 1942. It is important to note that the order, by its express terms, had no application to persons within the bounds of an established assembly center pursuant to instructions from this headquarters. The obvious purpose of the orders made, taken together, was to drive all citizens of Japanese ancestry into assembly centers within the zones of their residence under pain of criminal prosecution. The predicament in which the petitioner thus found himself was this. He was forbidden by military order to leave the zone in which he lived. He was forbidden by military order after a date fixed to be found within that zone unless he were in an assembly center located in that zone. General DeWitt's report to the Secretary of War concerning the program of evacuation and relocation of Japanese makes it entirely clear. If it were necessary to refer to that document, and in the light of the above recitation, I think it is not, that an assembly center was a euphemism for a prison. No person within such a center was permitted to leave except by military order. In the dilemma that he dare not remain in his home or voluntarily leave the area without incurring criminal penalties, and that the only way he could avoid punishment was to go to an assembly center and submit himself to military imprisonment, the petitioner did nothing. June 12, 1942. An information was filed in the District Court for Northern California charging a violation of the Act of March 21, 1942, in that petitioner had knowingly remained within the area covered by Exclusion Order Number 34. A demurrer to the information having been overruled, the petitioner was tried under a plea of not guilty and convicted. Sentence was suspended, and he was placed on probation for five years. We know, however, in the light of the foregoing recitation, that he was at once
taken into military custody, and lodged in an assembly center. We further know that on March 18, 1942, the President had promulgated Executive Order Number 9102, establishing the War Relocation Authority, under which so-called relocation centers, a euphemism for concentration camps, were established pursuant to a cooperation between the military authorities of the Western Defense Command and the Relocation Authority, and that the petitioner has been confined either in an assembly center within the zone in which he had lived or has been removed to a relocation center where, as the facts disclosed in Ex Parte Mitsuye Endo demonstrate, he was illegally held in custody. The government has argued this case as if the only order outstanding at the time the petitioner was arrested and informed against was exclusion order number 34, ordering him to leave the area in which he resided, which was the basis of the information against him. That argument has evidently been effective. The opinion refers to the Hirabayashi case to show that this court has sustained the validity of a curfew order in an emergency. The argument, then, is that exclusion from a given area of danger, while somewhat more sweeping than a curfew regulation, is of the same nature, a temporary expedient made necessary by a sudden emergency. This, I think, is a substitution of a hypothetical case. I might agree with the court's disposition of the hypothetical case. The liberty of every American citizen freely to come and to go must frequently, in the face of sudden danger, be temporarily limited or suspended. The civil authorities must often resort to the expedient of excluding citizens temporarily from a locality. The drawing of fire lines in the case of a conflagration, the removal of persons from the area where a pestilence has broken out, are familiar examples. If the exclusion worked by Exclusion Order Number 34 were of that nature, the Hirabayashi case would be authority for sustaining it. But the facts above recited, and those set forth in Ex Parte Mitsoye Endo, show that the exclusion was but a part of an overall plan for forcible detention. This case cannot, therefore, be decided on any such narrow ground as the possible validity of a temporary exclusion order under which the residents of an area are given an opportunity to leave and go elsewhere in their native land outside the boundaries of a military area. To make the case turn on any such assumption is to shut our eyes to reality. As I have said above, the petitioner, prior to his arrest, was faced with two diametrically contradictory orders given sanction by the Act of Congress of March 21, 1942. The earlier of those orders made him a criminal if he left the zone in which he resided, the later made him a criminal if he did not leave. I had supposed that if a citizen was constrained by two laws, or two orders having the force of law, an obedience to one would violate the other. To punish him for violation of either would deny him due process of law. And I had supposed that under these circumstances a conviction for violating one of the orders could not stand. We cannot shut our eyes to the fact that had the petitioner attempted to violate Proclamation Number 4 and leave the military area in which he lived, he would have been arrested and tried and convicted for violation of Proclamation Number 4. The two conflicting orders, 
one which commanded him to stay, and the other which commanded him to go, were nothing but a cleverly devised trap to accomplish the real purpose of the military authority, which was to lock him up in a concentration camp. The only course by which the petitioner could avoid arrest and prosecution was to go to that camp, according to instructions, to be given him when he reported at a civil control center. We know that is the fact. Why should we set up a figmentary and artificial situation instead of addressing ourselves to the actualities of the case? These stark realities are met by the suggestion that it is lawful to compel an American citizen to submit to illegal imprisonment on the assumption that he might, after going to the assembly center, apply for his discharge by suing out a writ of habeas corpus, as was done in the Endo case. The answer, of course, is that where he was subject to two conflicting laws, he was not bound, in order to escape violation of one of the other, to surrender his liberty for any period. Nor will it do to say that the detention was a necessary part of the process of evacuation, and so we are here concerned only with the validity of the latter. Again, it is a new doctrine of constitutional law that one indicted for disobedience to an unconstitutional statute may not defend on the ground of the invalidity of the statute, but must obey it, though he knows it is no law, and after he has suffered the disgrace of conviction and lost his liberty by sentence, then and not before, seek from within prison walls to test the validity of the law. Moreover, it is beside the point to rest decision in part on the fact that the petitioner, for his own reasons, wished to remain in his home. If, as is the fact, he was constrained so to do, it is indeed a narrow application of constitutional rights to ignore the order which constrained him, in order to sustain his conviction for violation of another contradictory order. I would reverse the judgment of conviction. End of part two.